0: listening to radio Maria, a Christian
1: voice in I with Jesus the Messiah of Judaism, by Shulman. hi this is Roy showman and welcome again to Jesus the promised Messiah of Judaism the show on radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church or seen the other way around that celebrates the fulfillment the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments well Um, boy what's today's show about first of all let me point out as most of these shows are they're live they're call-in shows the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY M-A-R-Y and I'm more than happy to take any calls and um, we will have a short break about halfway through the show so uh, it's not necessary to wait until that break, but if you wish to wait until that break, then I will um, uh, be sure to check for callers um, uh, but, you know when, as soon as I come back from the break. Uh, but anyway, call anytime. Anyway, today's show is actually going to be about huh, I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the end of Judaism. I don't want to say the transformation of Judaism into the Catholic Church and I've done shows more or less on those topics in the past, I would say today's show is going to be on the period of time and the events which resulted in the transformation of Judaism, basically the fork in the road, a split in the road, where Judaism, as it was given by God in the Old Testament to the Jewish people, reached a fork in the road and split into two branches, one of those branches being The Catholic Church and the sacraments, which are the continuation of Judaism in its fullness as a God-given relationship between God and man for the salvation of mankind. And what's called rabbinic Judaism, or the Judaism which emerged from the wreckage of Old Testament Judaism. Um, There's going to inevitably be some negative aspects to this show. It's a very painful uh, point in history from the point of view or for the, um, it was a very painful point in history for the Jews. So anyway, I'm going to start at the beginning of this huge transformation, which of course uh, started with the crucifixion of Christ because, uh, very briefly to recap of course, uh, Judaism is a divinely revealed religion. You can't escape that fact if you're a believing Catholic, because uh, Judaism was given to the Jewish people by God in the Old Testament, according to the Old Testament, and as Catholics we know that uh, both the Old and New Testament are divinely inspired, um, and uh, they may have used human writers, but they're inspired by the Holy Spirit and free from meaningful substantial errors, so we know that the Judaism that was given to the Jews for that period leading, well, given to the Jews in the Old Testament was straight from God. And we also, of course, know that the Catholic Church and the New Testament were given straight from God. So here's what happened. What happened was Okay, Judaism was given to the Jews in order to prepare, primarily to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, to prepare for the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity as a man. That happened. That happened around the year zero, so to speak, when Jesus was born. Of course, about 33 years later, Jesus was crucified. We know as Catholics that when Jesus was crucified, the sacramental system, that God had given the Jews of animal sacrifice for the remission of sins uh, was abrogated, ended, because all of that sacrificial system was simply a prefigurement of the true sacrifice for the remission of sins once and for all, Jesus' death on the cross, and the reparticipation in that sacrifice in a non-bloody manner at every holy sacrifice of the Mass. We know from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that the animal sacrifices ceased having any validity, any value in the eyes of God at the time of the crucifixion, since they were entirely about pointing to their fulfillment with the crucifixion, so to speak. Um, We know from the Gospels that there was a great earthquake at the time of the crucifixion, and the... um, veil in the temple was rent in two, the pillars fell, the veil in the temple was rent in two Uh, that was covering the Holy of Holies, there was great destruction in the temple, this was a sign by God that the temple sacrifices no longer had any meaning and if you've seen uh, Mel Gibson's movie The Passion of the Christ there's a very dramatic visualization of that at the end of the movie when the crucifixion takes place of the pillars of the temple falling down this earthquake kind of shattering the temple and making the pillars fall down and the veil be rent so as christians it's very simple to see that the sacrificial meaning well i'm sorry i'm t- tying myself in knots that the sacramental system for the remission of sins that was given to the jewish people in the old testament Ended at the time of the crucifixion. For the purposes of this show, I will refer to the Judaism that was given to the Jews in the Old Testament, which started with the revelation of the first five books of the Old Testament to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, uh, somewhere around 1500 BC. Uh, That was kind of the, the, that was when it was laid out in black and white, so to speak, for the Jews to follow. Um, That system, which was given to Moses on top of Mount Sinai and followed more or less faithfully by the Jews for 1,500 years, maybe a little more than that, until the time of Christ, I will refer to as either Old Testament Judaism or Temple Judaism, those two names being synonymous because it's Old Testament Judaism because it's the Judaism as described in the Old Testament, and it's temple Judaism, because it is uh, the the Judaism which is based on animal sacrifice, which had to take place in the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, now, here is why it sounds like (laughs) I'm tying myself in knots. This is where it gets confusing, because to make sense of this show, and to make sense of the relationship between Judaism and Christianity... We have to consider three religions, not two religions. This would be easier if I had a picture that I could show you, or a blackboard, but I don't. So here's, I'm just going to have to name them. Religion number one, temple Judaism or Old Testament Judaism, God-given, it was given just to the Jews, it was meant only for the Jews to follow, but nonetheless, it came from God, it was 100% valid, it was 100% true, and... It it depended on animal sacrifice, and it was given, as I said, to Moses, and it continued until around the time of Christ. In a few moments, I'll go into the reason why I have to be cautious about dating its end. Anyway, that's religion number one, temple Judaism. The thing to remember is it's the Judaism in the Old Testament. It's true, it's real, it's good, it's valid. Um, You know, there's nothing questionable about it. That's religion number one. Religion number two is Christianity, which is actually, as we know, essentially the continuation of Judaism after the coming of the Jewish Messiah. It is Christianity, and more specifically, the Catholic Church and her sacraments are true, they're God-given, they're entirely good, they are the fulfillment of Judaism, they're the continuation of Judaism after the Jewish Messiah came, who is Jesus, and the um, primary difference, let me say, and I'm not doing this justice, but the primary distance difference between Christianity or the Catholic, I'll call it Catholicism, and Old Testament Judaism, it's twofold. One is, it is really the fulfillment of the religion because Judaism was simply a preparatory stage and the other really key difference is Judaism was only meant for one group of people one ethnic group one clan the descendants of Abraham the Jews and the reason was restricted to one people was because its whole purpose was simply to enable the incarnation to take place it wasn't actually meant for the whole world what was meant for the whole world was the fulfilled version of Judaism after the Messiah came which we know as Christianity and in fact as Catholics Catholic means universal. That's what the word means. It's the universalization of the relationship between God and man. It's meant for every human being on the face of the earth, hence, it's universal. That is a very key distinction with Judaism, which was never meant to be universal. It was meant for a single group of people. Also, lest anyone be confused, the relationship with God provided by the sacraments of the Catholic Church is 10,000 million times greater than the relationship with God, which was provided by Old Testament Judaism. I'm not equating them in that sense. As a matter of fact, heaven was closed to the Jews. We know that, right? Because, because um, on Holy Saturday, after the crucifixion, Jesus descended to the dead, and it was called the limbo of the just, and opened the gates of heaven, and there was this flood of all of the souls of the just who died before the crucifixion, who were trapped in this limbo of the just, Flooding into heaven. Who were the two people at the beginning of that parade, at the front of that parade? It was Adam and Eve, and every righteous soul after them, because heaven was not available in Judaism. Anyway, so I'm not equating Judaism and Catholicism in in the sense of them having equal salvific power or anything like that. But they're both entirely true. They're both God-revealed religions. Religion number three now, this is where it gets a little tricky, is I will call for the purposes of the show either rabbinic Judaism or Talmud Judaism. I'll try to stick to rabbinic Judaism. And basically, it is, I, hate, I don't want to offend anybody, but it's a man-made religion. And I will spend much of the show talking about where rabbinic Judaism comes from. But see, here's where the it's important for... A, Catholic to understand this distinction, is because Temple Judaism was a God-given true religion. Rabbinic Judaism is a man-made, not from God, and only occasionally true religion. It's not intrinsically true, it's not divinely revealed, it's man-made. And like other man-made religions, it occasionally has flashes of truth in it, but it's not intrinsically true like a religion coming from God. But we use the same word Judaism for both of those two religions. So we're using the same name Judaism for a religion that's given by God and is true and a religion that's made up by men and is not true. You can see where that causes a lot of theological difficulties when that terminology is mixed up like that. And unfortunately, that confusion, because of that mix up, Appears even in documents that come from various aspects of the church, various committees and, and uh, so forth. Uh, it's in a number of documents from, from the Catholic Church reflect that confusion. I may or may not have time to talk about that specifically on the show. So, so I'm just getting back to this key point, which is three religions. Nail that down in, in your mind. Temple Judaism... Christianity, rabbinic Judaism, temple Judaism, true but meant just for the Jews and needed the temple and couldn't couldn't continue after the loss of the temple. Christianity, which was the true god-given continuation of temple Judaism after its fulfillment through the coming of the Messiah and the uh, the true sacrifice of the cross, and rabbinic Judaism, which was man-made and is the continuation of Judaism that we think of as Judaism since the year zero AD or BC. So I think we have a caller on the line, so I'd be happy to take the call.
0: Hi, boy. Yes? Yeah, um, uh, when, uh how does uh, the history of Adam and Eve uh square uh, with evolution?
1: Okay. How does Adam and Eve square with evolution? Well, thank you for the question. It's a very good question. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll speak straight from Catholic dogma, because you don't really want to know my speculation or my opinions. So strictly from a... I'm not saying my... My, my views do not disagree with dogma. They just go beyond dogma. Okay, so... Uh, and and I actually um, I think if I could tell the studio there's a little feedback problem, so maybe it would be better if if you could silence the. I, I just try, yeah I cut it completely. Okay, good. Um, okay, so uh, basically, the Catholic Church has not pronounced on whether there was some kind of biological evolution, and there was and that the um, physical composition of man, whether it grew out of lower animal forms or not. I personally don't believe it did, but the Church doesn't say anything one way or the other, and the Church is perfectly happy to accept the view of evolution. However, there is a dogmatic statement by the Church, I I forgot the name of the document, I think it was Pius XI, that says that you basically have to believe that there was one first human couple, uh, which we call Adam and Eve, because you wouldn't have original sin if you didn't have an original couple who sinned and fell. And ever since then, all of humanity, all of humanity, is uh, tainted by that original sin. If you had more than one couple from whom all of humanity sprung, We wouldn't all be tainted by original sin, right? Only the ones whose great, 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 great ancestors were that particular couple. So um, I think the conventional attitude in the church is that at some point, the animals that were to evolve into man had reached a sufficient point so that God infused essentially human souls in one man and one woman, and they became Adam and Eve. And they, they are the progenitors, they are the ancestors of all of humanity. That somehow the animal precursors of man may have developed through evolution, but the transformation into man with a human soul made in the likeness of God was restricted to one couple from whom all of humanity descended. That's basically. The, I
0: think, this.
1: Where do you uh, find this? I'm
0: building things in there, but quite, uh, I and mean, it, it just didn't make sense to me. But uh, I struggle with it a little bit, and uh, it should. What about ne- ne- Neanderthal man or whatever? That would be
1: beforehand if that was the case. I I didn't catch that last point. The what befell man? Ne- ne- Neanderthal. Oh, Neanderthal. Neanderthal. yeah but you know, I don't know. I don't know whether Adam and Eve were Neanderthals or not. All, all I know, I mean, I know that what the Church teaches dogmatically. And and I, I I'm sorry, but because of the feedback, I'm, I'm going to ask the studio to, um, you know what I mean. I, 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 basically, let me answer. But I, I have to be disconnected from the caller at this point. Um. I don't know whether Adam and Eve were Neanderthals or not. I don't know at what point in the development of the animal precursors or the subhuman precursors of man, Adam and Eve appeared. All I know is that all of humanity has descended from one couple, and I know that because it is in, dog- in a dogmatic statement, and um, I you know, would have to look up and find the name of that statement. But it was the 20th century, and I think it was Pius XI. And I will say... For the consolation of any one of our listeners, I mean, I'm a scientist, I went to MIT, I, I was a, a straight A student, and I have a Bachelor of Science from degree from MIT, and I took this stuff very seriously, and on the basis of science, I think that evolution is not true, okay, so, but that's just my opinion, it's not the pronouncement of the church but anyway, I don't think there's any need to feel compelled to believe in evolution. Um, even, uh, anyway, so we're, we're, bre- we're browbeaten into believing in evolution. We're browbeaten into believing that you have three heads or you're superstitious and ignorant if you don't believe in evolution. There was a very good series on Radio Maria. I hope it's still, um, up there in the archives. And it was on, what was it called? Um, it was on it was called oh gosh i forgot the name of it um it wasn't on creationism it was on uh intelligent design i think intelligent design might be in the name of the show anyway the the host had scientists on that basically gave, laid out the groundwork for why it doesn't make sense that intelligent design had to be behind the um life as we see it anyway Back to the mainstream of my show. Thank you for the call. Oh, thank you, right. Okay. Bye. <laughs> um, bye. Um, now, um, that's the only problem with calls is, is picking up the thread. Um, the uh, Okay, so there are those three streams. And where did rabbinic Judaism come from? Well, um, Jesus was crucified, obviously, around 30, 33 AD. The temple was... Um, Damaged by that earthquake, but it wasn't destroyed. The Jews continued living in Jerusalem and making animal sacrifice in the temple from the crucifixion until uh, 70 AD, somewhere between 70-71 AD. At that point, there was a revolt against Rome by the Jews, and uh, Jerusalem was conquered by Rome. It was terribly devastating. Um... The uh, estimate uh, uh, at the time was actually 1.1 million Jews were killed. Uh, About 100,000 were led into slavery. Those were the survivors. It was incredible devastation, and the temple was totally destroyed. As Jesus said, not one stone left upon another. At that point, there was no more temple sacrifice at all. Uh, There was no more temple, and the temple was not rebuilt. So... I won't go into detail about that period between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., but no matter how you look at it, Temple Judaism ended at 70 A.D. Temple Judaism ended. There was no Temple anymore. The Jews, for a while, still hoped they would rebuild the Temple. So they were holding on to the idea of Old Testament Judaism. But then there was another revolt about 130 A.D., It's called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. I'd love to go into detail on this, but I just did a um, live stream series on this. You can look on my YouTube channel if you do that kind of a thing. And I think I spent about four hours going through this history and the theology. So in one hour, you know, I have to really accordion it, you know, kind of, you know, squish it down to the bare kernel. So anyway, but in 130 AD, there was another revolt by the Jews against Rome. Uh, It also failed. It was also crushed very, very uh, brutally. And uh, from that point on, the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem. They drifted back, but, you know, for a number of decades, the Jews were uh, exiled from Jerusalem under pain of death. They couldn't come within sight of Jerusalem. The Jewish rabbis who survived, who, by the way, were only... Pharisee rabbis. None of the Sadducees, none of the Essenes uh, survived these revolts. So, all that was left was the Pharisees, and all of the Judaism that is reflected, basically rabbinic Judaism, reflects the Pharisee stream. There's no question about that. But the rabbis who survived, who were all Pharisees, they um, resettled, let's say, in a town called Yavne, in Hebrew, in, in English, and in Greek, it's usually called Jamnia, and uh, they formed a school there that was the major center for Judaism following the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Okay, so now you have all of the Jewish rabbis who are left, you know, gathered in Jamnia, looking at the destruction of Jerusalem, looking at the fact that the temple is destroyed and having given up hope on ever rebuilding the temple, looking at the Judaism that God gave them in the Old Testament and saying, where do we go from here? What do we do now? (laughs) How can we follow this religion without animal sacrifice, without a temple? So they got together and they came up with, let's say, they designed the rabbinic Judaism. They designed this continuation of Judaism after the end of Temple Judaism, after the end of the Temple, after the dispersal from Jerusalem. And that is what we have today within Judaism. Of course, the Jews who are really following the the true course of Judaism or in the Catholic Church, if I may say so. But the Jews who don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah and are still trying to follow Judaism, they are trapped in rabbinic Judaism. Now, um, I will... Okay, so what is at the heart... First of all, let me just say that I threw around the term uh, Talmud Judaism early in the show. When we come back from the break which we'll have in about three or four minutes. I will talk about the Talmud and why it's called Talmud Judaism. I'll hold off for the moment until after the break to talk more about the Talmud. But the heart of rabbinic Judaism is, okay, what can we do as Jews to, um, how can we gain remission of our sins in the absence of animal sacrifice, which requires the temple? And the solution in rabbinic Judaism is that prayer, fasting, and almsgiving can substitute for the animal sacrifice. That's a completely man-made concept. Unless you think that this gathering at Jamnia was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's difficult to believe as Christians because it's the very same school at Jamnia that also formally declared that Jesus was a false messiah, That he was an apostate, that he was an evildoer, that um, he was correctly condemned to death um, and executed on the eve of Passover, that he was a magician who had gained his false arts growing up in Egypt. Note that that's actually true. In other words, they recognize that Jesus grew up in, uh, in Egypt, but rather than being, you know, a wonder worker, the son of God, the Messiah, he was basically a wicked man who had these black arts of magic and used them to lead the Jewish nation astray into the apostasy that became Christianity. Needless to say, that was not the Holy Spirit talking. So, you know, one can't really in good conscience say that Rabbinic Judaism was created at a council, it's referred to as the Council of Jamnia, it's not really a council, it's really a school. But you couldn't really argue that rabbinic Judaism came from a council that was under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, since they condemned Jesus at that very same council. So what we have now in Judaism, which is um, very oriented towards uh, obeying the law, that is uh, very, very, very anchored in the Talmud, and in the written-down discussions that came out of this Council of Jamnia uh, is what came from what I'm describing. In other words, it's this man-made solution to the problem of how can we continue Judaism after the destruction of the Temple. The Jews at that time were faced with three key problems, um, which were – I'm trying to find the relevant note – they had three fundamental problems. Now I'm looking at like 135 A.D., which is after the failed second revolt against the Romans and the second destruction of Jerusalem and the final exile of the Jews from Jerusalem for, for a number of decades. As I said, they did drift back. You know, within, you know, within 20 or 30 years, there were some Jews back in Jerusalem, but they had no hope of rebuilding the temple. They were faced with three problems. What, how do we continue Judaism without Jerusalem and a temple? How do we continue Judaism now that the Jews have been dispersed throughout the world? Remember, already in 70 AD, 100,000 were uh, led into slavery by the Romans. and, And with the second failed revolt, they knew they were going to be spread all over the world. And what do we do in the face of the encroachment of Christianity? Because we're talking about 135 AD. So there was already a large movement of Jews entering the church. And so those were the three problems facing the rabbis in Jamnia in 135 AD. And their solution is reflected in the Talmud. So that's where I will go when we come out of the break. Also, again, it's a live call-in program. The number heres 866-333-6279. If you want to call, uh, that's 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And with that, oh, let's go to our musical break. Let me just say... The musical break is actually very interesting in the context of the show because it's the Lamentations of Jeremiah that are sung. It's a Catholic chant that is sung during Holy Week, Holy Thursday and Good Friday, by monastic communities. And it's a lamentation over the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's exactly what I was talking about in 70 AD. But the uh, full chant compares the destruction of Jerusalem... It takes it as a picture of the crucifixion and the tragedy of the destruction of Jerusalem is kind of merged in with the tragedy of the Jews' rejection of Jesus and of the crucifixion of Christ. So with that, let's go to that short musical break. I'll be back in about two minutes, and um, I hope you're enjoying it.
0: of the nations into slavery has fallen the princes of kingdoms Earth. Earth. unceasingly she reaps by night and with tears her cheeks are laid suitors, there is none to console her. Her seeming friends have rejected her, and all. the only one that helps. Of
1: Judaism with Hi, welcome back. Thanks for staying with me. Um, we've been talking about the split of the God-given religion of Judaism that was given to the Jews uh, in the Old Testament uh, and which required Jerusalem and the Temple in Jerusalem to be followed into two offspring, let's say, which is Christianity, which is the true continuation of Judaism, the God-given continuation of Judaism, and Rabbinic Judaism, which was the man-made continuation of Judaism, which was uh, developed by the surviving Pharisee rabbis after the destruction of Jerusalem. And it was developed basically in order to provide a religion for the Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, who, in other words, would not continue God's continuation into Christianity, but wanted, or thought they should, continue it with the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And therefore they came up with rabbinic Judaism. Uh, I'm dating it to 135 AD, and I'm um, associating with the Council of Jamnia, which Jamnia being a town... Not very far, maybe about 60 miles from Jerusalem, where the rabbis escaped from the destruction of Jerusalem and set up the subsequent, the, the, um, you know, the the later center of Jewish theology uh, in Jamnia. Once they could no longer continue in Jerusalem because of the failed revolts against the Romans and, and the exile of the Jews. So that's where we were when I went into the break. And now I'm going to have to introduce the concept of the Talmud because basically the situation is the following that there always was an oral tradition in Judaism. That is, the Jewish belief is that when God gave Moses the five books of Moses, it's called the Torah, it's the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, according to Jewish belief, were dictated by God to Moses on top of Mount Sinai during the exodus from Egypt. Jewish belief has, was always that in addition to those five books of Moses that God dictated to Moses and telling him to write it down, God also gave Moses a tremendous amount of oral instruction and told Moses that it should never be written down, that it should be passed on from teacher to pupil, from from master to disciple. It should be passed on orally. And what this um, oral tradition or oral law consisted of was largely an explanation of the Torah, an explanation of what is written down in the first five books of Moses, because God recognized that There wasn't enough detail in the written Old Testament to know how to follow the laws. For instance, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, what are you allowed to do and what aren't you allowed to do? Are you allowed to harvest crops? Are you allowed to milk a cow? Are you allowed to light a fire to cook your food? Um, You know, just what is allowed and what isn't allowed. And so, God recognized that he's going to have to give more detail in order to understand how to follow the laws that were given in the Torah. And therefore, he also gave the um, oral law, the, the Jewish oral tradition. And it began with what God instructed Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And it was passed down teacher to pupil ever since then. So, that became... so. So, there there was that oral tradition in 135 AD still, when the rabbis met at Jamnia. And they were instructed, they had been instructed by God, according to the Jewish understanding, never to write it down. However, here they are in Jamnia, and they're faced with the fact that they're going to be dispersed around the world, and an oral tradition doesn't work dispersed around the world, because There are going to be groups of Jews in India, there are going to be groups of Jews in the Far East, there are going to be groups of Jews uh, in Spain, and over the um, generations of oral transmission, things are going to get garbled, and they're going to end up following different religions, so to speak. So, at the same point in time, I'll call it the Council of Jamnia, the rabbis decided that despite the prohibition not to write down the oral tradition... It's time to write it down. It has to be written down so that Jews all around the world are following the same oral tradition, the same law. They know what to do. So they wrote it down, and that's called the Talmud. I'm taking shortcuts with this because I only have an hour. That's basically what the Talmud is. The core of the Talmud is the written-down Jewish um, uh, oral tradition, but then... It's also got built around it, built into the Talmud, rabbinic discussions further explaining what was in the oral tradition. And then even rabbinic discussions further explaining the earlier rabbinic discussions. So it's several layers, like an onion. The, the, the core of the onion is the um, oral law as given to Moses on Mount Sinai, according to Jewish belief. But then the layers around the on, onion surrounding that are subsequent generations of rabbis' discussions about what it meant. So that's what the Talmud is, and it was written down. Um, oh well, I see. I see. We have uh, a call. I I, um, I I really appreciate the questions, but um, I have to go through what I'm trying to explain now at this time at the end. I'll, I'll take this question, which which is um, actually not directly related, so please forgive me. Anyway, so that's what the Talmud is. It was written down uh, between figure the 2nd century AD and the 5th century AD. Um, it was written down in two places. Uh, there's a Babylonian Talmud, and uh, there is the Jerusalem Talmud. Together, it is Uh, the size of the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, it fills a shelf of very small writing, I might add. It fills probably about three feet of of books. Uh, You know, it's about 26 bound volumes, uh, each of them about two inches thick or an inch and a half thick. It is uh, tremendously extensive. It goes into tremendous detail. And once it was written down and finished being written down, it basically became the um, invariant magisterial teaching, so to speak, of Judaism, not subject to contradiction or change, basically became Jewish dogma. And boy, I'm taking a lot of shortcuts here, because some of the rabbis that contributed to the Talmud, in the sense of those 26 volumes, came later. But they were considered so authoritative that their commentary on the earlier rabbis Got added to the books, to the volumes of the Talmud. Anyway, it gets complicated, but I'm I'm just trying to paint a broad brush picture. So anyway, that's the Talmud. Now, what is the problem with the Talmud? There are a number of problems with the Talmud. One is that by its very nature, it froze Judaism. Um, It froze Judaism like you know, like a a fly in amber. Uh, It's as though it's as though you had the dogma of the Catholic Church but no subsequent magisterium to explain the dogma further or to to um, uh, basically explain the dogma further develop the dogma that may not be a perfect parallel maybe I want to erase that but in any case it froze Judaism in the Judaism of whatever that was the 3rd century, the 4th century um, the other problem another problem with the Talmud or another issue that's raised with the Talmud, is that it is by its very nature extremely legalistic. The, the number one imperative in Judaism, and this goes back to Temple Judaism, it just becomes a problem in the after the Temple and after Judaism was supposed to change into Christianity, uh, the, the, the religion that God revealed to the Jews in the Old Testament was very focused on the faithful following of the laws. And the Jewish understanding is that you don't follow the laws to make it to heaven rather than to go to hell. In fact, Maimonides, who is the primary, let's say, legislator of Judaism, he was later, he was, I think, about 11th, 12th century, Um, he said that basically... Uh, it's a little like Martin Luther. He said that a Jew can commit all of the sins in the book. The only way he can lose his share in the world to come, which is the Jewish terminology for heaven, is by separating himself out from the Jewish people. In other words, by no longer being a Jew in good standing. And the way you are a Jew in good standing is largely by following the commandments, by following the laws. And, um... And also, the following of the laws is what is to bring about the coming of the Messiah, bring about our redemption. So a Jew wants to follow the laws because every time he performs a mitzvah, a, a successful obedience to one of the laws, it's like putting putting a penny in the, uh, in the piggy bank, and when there are enough pennies in the piggy bank, the Messiah will come. So the Talmud is largely about it goes into elaborate detail about exactly what's allowed and what's not allowed, and so forth. Uh, and Jesus already complained about this. Of course, he wasn't referring to the Talmud because it wasn't written, but he was referring to the oral tradition. Remember when he said, um, "You know, you 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 load up heavy burdens that you place on men's shoulders that you're not willing to bear yourself, and you basically uh, substitute." the traditions of men for the laws of God. He was referring to all of these elaborations on the law that were produced by the rabbis. So, so that's the Talmud. That is the split in the road, the fork in the road, that came about as a result of actually the fulfillment of Judaism, the coming of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the fact that sacramental Judaism, as reflected in the Old Testament, ended and was continued in the sacramental Catholic Church, and the Jews have rejected Jesus, had to somehow have a religion to continue following, and they developed, you could say invented, rabbinic Judaism, which is man-made. Maybe I could have avoided the whole show up till now and just made that statement. Now, I know that most of you guys are Christian, and um, many, or if not most, of you are Catholic, and so why is this of any interest to you? And one of the reasons is because the Catholic Church has a history of interaction with Jews and Judaism, a 2,000-year history, in fact. And it has gone through several phases, and it has um, veered to the left and veered to the right at various points in time. Maybe I should say veered to the right and veered to the left at various points in time, because right now I would argue that the general trend of a Catholic-Jewish relations has veered a little bit to the left, maybe a little more than a little to the left. And in the beginning centuries of the Church, it had veered more than a little bit to the right, so to speak. And both of those errors of veering to the left and veering to the right come from not making a clear distinction between the God-given true religion of Temple Judaism and the false man-made religion of Rabbinic Judaism you don't make that distinction, you make one of two errors. The error that the, um, that Catholic theologians, I don't want to say the Church, because the Church never makes an error, error. We're not talking about dogma. But we're talking about the general gist of Catholic theologians. The earlier error was, you can consider itself a right-wing error, and that you can call supersessionism, or perhaps extreme supersessionism that word supersessionism comes from the word to supersede, to replace. It's also called replacement theology. And that theology basically says that there is no that the election of the Jews has ended. There's no continuing election of the Jews because the Jews rejected Christ, rejected God and therefore God has rejected the Jews. And all of the favoritism, so to speak, all of the election that a God had given the Jews in the Old Testament, has been revoked. I'll call that replacement theology for the moment. Now, we know from Scripture that that can't be true. And I'll just read a few verses from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, from chapter 11. I'm not making this up. What I'm reading is straight there. You can look at Romans 11 yourself. This is St. Paul speaking, but it's Holy Scripture, so we know it's true. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means... I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Okay, so in those three or four verses, Scripture makes it very clear that As regards election, the Jews are still beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The election of the Jews continues. Okay, so that settles the issue, actually, of supersessionism or of replacement theology. The Jews have not been replaced um, in the sense of election. Don't argue with me, argue with St. Paul. However, in order to make sense of that, you have to distinguish between the election of the Jews and the salvific sacramental system represented by Old Testament or Temple Judaism. Because that salvific sacramental system definitely was replaced by the church. And just to make it clear that it was replaced by the church, God made sure that the temple was destroyed shortly thereafter, never to be rebuilt. Okay, because there's no role for animal sacrifice since then. So there's no question that the sacrificial salvific Old Testament Judaism has been replaced. The election of the Jews has not been replaced. The other error that Catholic theologians make in our, mostly in our day, is to say that since the election of the Jews continues, they don't need Jesus to be saved. They don't need Christianity. They're still in their quote, original salvific covenant with God. They're not. Because that original salvific covenant is temple Judaism. It's not rabbinic Judaism. And that original salvific covenant, even if God were still honoring it, the Jews can't honor it. They couldn't honor it for the last 2,000 years because they had no temple for the animal sacrifice. Yet, and I will close with this quote from a cardinal, who was actually, uh, Cardinal Casper, who was the president of the Pontifical Commission for Religious relations with the Jews at the time of the statement. Statements from 2001 at a conference. And he had the chutzpah, if you excuse the Jewish expression, chutzpah means unmitigated nerve or something like that, to say the following, The Jewish covenant has not been revoked and remains salvifically effective for Jews. Therefore, there is no missionary activity on the part of the church directed toward converting Jews. So you see this is the other error you fall into if you don't distinguish between Temple Judaism and Rabbinic Judaism. You actually say that the Jewish covenant remains salvifically effective for Jews, so we don't have to evangelize them. We do have to evangelize them. The Jewish covenant of the Old Testament doesn't remain salvifically effective for Jews, among other reasons, because the Temple doesn't exist. Also, of course, because Jesus was the true fulfillment of it. But even if you don't want to believe that, you have to believe that the Jews have not been following Old Testament Judaism for 2,000 years. So you can't argue that they don't need Christianity and they don't need Christ to be saved because they are in their original salvific covenant with God. So I hope I made sense out of that. Um, it's really, really important that, that, um, as I said... The earlier error that says the Jews' election has ended is referred to as supersessionism or replacement theology. The later error, that we don't have to evangelize the Jews, is referred to as uh, the dual covenant theory. That there are two salvific covenants, the original salvific covenant that God gave the Jews in the Old Testament, and the Christian salvific covenant, the New Covenant, And they're both still in force, and so the members of one covenant don't have to worry about switching to the other covenant. You can see how damaging this is to the missionary impulse to evangelize the Jews. And yet, Jesus spent his entire life, and he was actually crucified for evangelizing Jews. We know how dear it was to his heart. When he sent out his disciples, he said, go nowhere among the Gentiles, go to no town of the Samaritans, go only to the lost sheep, of the house of Israel. Uh, days before the crucifixion, he wept over Jerusalem, saying, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have me. We know how how Jesus aches, aches for his own people to finally receive him and finally say, as he said, Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. So please, don't shortchange the need to evangelize Jews and more specifically to pray for the conversion of the Jews. I know as a Jew in the church how hopeless, hopeless and abysmally despairing I was. You know, I had this huge yearning abyss in my heart for the Jewish Messiah and how that has been satisfied and made full and whole and happy by filling that hole with the Jewish Messiah, who is Jesus, in the Blessed Sacrament every day if possible. And if good Catholics don't pray for the conversion of the Jews, they aren't going to convert. And if they don't convert, we can't see the second coming, because we know from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 674 says, quote, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. Jesus can't come again until there's a widespread conversion of the Jews. Yet another reason to pray for the conversion of the Jews. Let me close the show with a short prayer. It's from the First Vatican Council. Uh, It's 100% kosher. um, It's hardly endorsed by the Pope of the Council, who is St. Pope Pius IX, and it was signed by virtually all of the Council Fathers. And it is a prayer, it's an invitation on the part of the Church to the Jews to join the Church. So let me close with that prayer. The undersigned fathers of the Council humbly yet urgently pray that the Holy Ecumenical Council of the Vatican come to the aid of the unfortunate nation of Israel with an entirely paternal invitation that finally exhausted by a weight no less futile than long, the Israelites hasten to recognize the Messiah, our Savior Jesus Christ, truly promised to Abraham and announced by Moses, thus completing and crowning, not changing, the religion of Moses. The undersigned fathers have the very firm confidence that the Holy Council will have compassion on the Israelites, because they are always very dear to God on account of their fathers, and because it is from them that Christ was born according to the flesh. Would that they then speedily acclaim the Christ, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Would that they hurl themselves into the arms of the Immaculate Virgin Mary, even now their sister according to the flesh, who wishes likewise to be their mother according to grace, as she is ours. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to me, Roy Shoman, on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, on Radio Maria, and I hope you join us again next week. Same place, same time. Bye for now.
0: Begins the lamentation of Jeremiah the prophet. A widow is she who had been mistress of the nation into slavery.